I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We are planning your financial future. You can call now and leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And also, don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. And of course, you can ask a question there via their listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, Good to see morning, you. Scott. Good morning, Scott. Been a Fabulous week. Has it been just as good a week on the markets? Yeah. Well, up and down, up and down this week. Big ups and big downs, actually. We're going to talk about real estate uh, and how that affects uh, our finances. Uh, Bubble, no bubble. I mean, what's going to happen here? Yeah, no kidding. It's uh, one of those uh, ones that have been rising steadily, basically, since about, uh, well, call it 2000 anyway. Mm -hmm. And in, in light of what came out last week, it was kind of interesting. They had a whole thing about uh, are people living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, I remember that. And it's like, wow, you know, people are scared. They're More and more. Yeah, it's 48% rely on each of their paydays just to cover their bills. Mm -hmm. And that kind of ties into real estate. If people are literally spending half of their, like half the people are just relying on their paycheck with no extra cash. Yeah. And in fact, 40% 40 of people spend every penny of their paycheck Mm -hmm. and then some. Yeah. Okay. More than their paycheck, yeah. which means they're going into debt. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's a, a bit of a debt spiral. This is something we've talked about many times on the show is, you know, you start to see the line of credit start to get used up. Well, how much more do we owe for every dollar we make? It's like a buck 63 now, isn't it? It's it's scary. Yeah, like absolutely. Yeah. It's getting scary. And then, so then 25% couldn't even come up with $2,000 if they had a month to do it. Wow. Okay. Mm. So there's a, uh, and about 50% said they could save about 5% on top of what they're doing, or not on top, that's it, period. Right. Um, and and if they were doing nothing, they could go up to 5%. And 39% said they're absolutely overwhelmed with their debt right now. Wow. With their number one being mortgages. Yeah. And that's the one area that I was looking at. I said, well, if mortgages is their number one concern and the majority of people are living paycheck to paycheck, this is just simply... Are people buying too much? Are they, are they relying on their next raise or bonus? It's kind of human nature to do that. It's uh, 31 years, both Andy and I, and it seems to be a common theme throughout all the time. It's been pe- people, it's, it's against human nature to save money, mm-hmm. okay, no matter what the case is. But right now, the number one kind of juggernaut is, is the house. And you take a look at how much they've gone up over the, over the last while. And since 2000, Housing prices have basically tripled. Wow. Okay. Okay. In in the Toronto area, in 2000, it would have been 243,000 was the average house. Yeah. And now it's about 710. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yet- It would the, be great if you uh, could just sell and didn't have to buy again. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I don't have to live yeah, anywhere. Some money. <laughs> just live in a tree maybe. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's kind of that interesting part is it's those new people getting into the market. Can, can they afford it? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, this is where it gets a little scary. Uh, you know, it's the incomes have only gone up 50% yeah. since 2000. Mm-hmm. So houses have tripled and incomes gone up 50%. So something eventually has to give here. And so you look at this and you say, okay, well, if the average house was 243000 back then, in 2000, and you put 10% down, it would cost you about $1,605 per month at the going interest rates back then of seven and a quarter percent. That was the going rate back then. It's actually hard to think that it was seven and a quarter percent 
back in 2000. It's hard to think that the mortgage rate your parents had, uh, even though it was very low, uh, I guess as you look through the 80s and 90s, still now looks high, relatively That's right. high. Yeah. It's That's not, right. At one time we used to say, oh, can you imagine having those? Now yeah. it's 5% boy. or something like it's, that. Or, oh, I, I, or yeah. even 6%. Yeah. 5 yeah. 6% mortgages yeah. were like a dream. Like yeah. you, absolutely a total dream because that would never happen. Yeah. And here we are now. Lower. At, at basically, and this is the rate they, you know, and as an example, the current the current house at seven hundred and ten thousand average cost, put ten percent down, at two and a quarter percent interest rates. Okay, mm-hmm. you would have payments of twenty nine hundred and thirty a month. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is practically double. So double the payment over the course of the sixteen years mm-hmm. on average, and yet the incomes have only gone up fifty percent. So this is where it's changed. At the time back in the year 2000, 35% of the median family income went to mortgage payments. Yeah. Now it's up to 45%. Mm. So 45% of your paycheck, call it half. You just split your paycheck in half. That's just mortgage payments. That does not include property taxes, mm. hydro, any of the other costs. Never mind eating, okay? Yeah. Or doing anything else. And there's two major risks with you know, being so leveraged. And one is we've all talked about is the interest rate risk. Mm-hmm. If interest rates ever do rise, how many people would be hurt? And certainly anybody with a mortgage, and, and particularly anybody who's bought recently, um, they, they, they got the most risk. And then there's the employment risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if, if uh, your job were to, you know, get light, laid off, or if you had to take a cut and pay, mm-hmm. you know, and changing jobs. Um, obviously, when you're going paycheck to paycheck, you can't, aff- there's no wiggle room. So you look through all this and you say, wow, this is quite the bubble. We've been talking about this bubble forever. But, you know, an interesting point too, Don, is that, you know, uh, people living paycheck to paycheck, I don't think it matters what the financial, um, um, how much you're making. I think even if you're, if you're a middle class, you're probably living close to the, to, to the edge, even mm-hmm. if you're upper or even lower. Um, you know, I, I guess it's just how much more disposable you will have to spend on extra things. But even people who are making reasonably good money are probably pushing the envelope. Yeah, absolutely great point, Scott. It's just there is that, I said, that human nature part where... If you've almost, got it, you'll spend it. You need to have that intervention, yeah, okay? Yeah. <laughs> you need to have that financial savings, planner yeah. intervention to go across and take a look. Okay, let's assume you take a little bit and pay yourself first mm-hmm. and put yourself as one of those expenses. Then you can go paycheck to paycheck yeah. because you're one of the ones you get paid. And that's a key point, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have to look at yourself as an expense. Yeah. And as long as you do that, and it's very difficult to do that, it's literally has to be somebody coming in and going through uh, what we call personal financial review, going through all your expenses, going through what's coming in, where's it going. So you're making good decisions when you are taking on more debt, Mm -hmm. that you know that there's wiggle room built in Mm -hmm. and that you're not putting out on those skinny branches. So it's interesting. So I I took a look at uh, real estate since 1984. In fact, I looked at a few asset classes, inflation, real estate, and then a, a very, what we call, say, a balanced fund. It's our Mutual of Canada account uh, fund. Not anything special, just a, a middle-of-the-road kind of fund. And it's a Canadian fund also at that. So, you know, you don't have the foreign content really that much. A little bit of American in there. But it's interesting. You go back through all those years, which is now uh, 32 years, 22 years, sorry. And it's uh, the average real estate increase over those 22 years. Just out of curiosity, what would you think it would be, Scott? Over 22 years? Yeah, per year. What would be the average increase per year? I would say 4%. Well, not bad. Not bad. Yeah, Mm 5.83%. Okay, which is decent. Yeah. Inflation over those 22 years 
has been 2.46%. Okay. And this Canadian mutual fund has averaged 6.5%. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's, a, again, a balanced fund. So, again, slightly higher than real estate. And, again, you're looking at how much you're beating inflation by. But at the same time, you're saying, okay, well, if, if the long-term average is approximately 6%, and you're starting to see these practically double-digit returns in real estate, things generally seem to go to the mean. Yeah. Okay, they do get to the average. It's no different than the stock market. Mm-hmm. When you start seeing the stock market do 15%, well, it's going to average six and a half. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be a, a few very low years or negative years for that matter. Mm-hmm. And I had to go back to my first, uh, my first comment, the, where the house I am living in now. And I bought that in 1989. And it turned out to be a, the worst year you could buy it, as it turned out. Because <laughs> I'm looking at this chart here. And the average Toronto area home in 1989... Oh, actually, not the average. If had you invested one hundred thousand eighty-four, it would have been worth two hundred sixty-nine thousand in nineteen eighty-nine, mm-hmm. and that's after some big years. In the late eighties, there was like a twenty-seven percent increase, a thirty-six, a twenty-one, and a nineteen percent increase, four m- big years in a row. Mm-hmm. And I remember that time because people were buying on speculation. Yeah, they're buying multiple houses and renting them out. Mm-hmm. They were buying condos before they were built. Does it sound familiar at all? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> and and everybody, not just, you know, people have done it in the past, you know, people that are absolutely not related to this type of uh, investing or, or home buying in the past, all of a sudden coming out of the woodwork and buying houses. Yeah. And, there's, and there are even people saying, and I remember this distinctly back then, I have to buy one for my kids now because they'll never be able to afford one. And you're getting that exact same thing right now. I will never say those words. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that $269,000 house in 1990, the following year, was now worth, the following year after I bought mine, that is, was down 6.8%. It's now worth 250. Uh, the next year it was down 8.1. It was down to 230. The next year it was down 8.3, down to 211. The next year it was down 4%, down to 203. Hey, it went up 1.2 in 1994, but just in time for it to go down 2.8, down to 199,000. And then finally in 1996, it had another drop, 2.4, bringing your your $269,000 home all the way down to 194,000. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is about a, an $80,000 um, decrease or about a third of the value. Approximately a third of the mm-hmm. value the house dropped. Mm-hmm. And that's easy to do. Like a lot of people don't look at real estate as ever dropping. They never remember that because Not they buy nowadays, a house. Yeah. yeah, they buy a house and they live in it. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, after 25 years, it's done pretty good. Mm-hmm. And that is very true. But, and there's no real market. Not like there's a market index every day. For example, on the way to work every day, you hear what the market mm-hmm. is doing. So you're, you're hearing the negatives and... But generally speaking, you only hear these positives in terms of real estate. And yes, it has been really good of late. But it's interesting. During those down years, in, in uh, 1991, when the real estate market was down, thirteen, uh, sorry, 8%, Mutual Canada was up 15%. When it was down um, 8% again, um, the Mutual Canada was up 4%. That's our, our mutual fund that we offer. Exactly. Yep. It's yep. a mutual, Canada, mutual fund that we offer. Thanks, Sandy. And it's also, it was down 4% in 1993. Mutual Canada was up 28%. So the whole point of this is diversifying. 
it's not that I, we're certainly not anti-real estate. Mm -hmm. It's all about diversifying your assets. And what I'm getting at here is you're taking a look at what's happened in Vancouver, where they tacked on the 15% foreign um, tax because of all the speculation. Yeah, with, yeah. And there's some worry that this might be driving, and there probably is driving, the foreign money is driving what's happening in Toronto right now to a certain extent. Yeah. And, uh, and there's that, I better get in the market soon kind of attitude or, or before it's too late. Once, that, once something goes, it can burst pretty quick and go the opposite way. And so all I'm saying is, like any asset, real, real estate, once you own your house, if you want to buy another property, okay, consider that. But look at diversifying and don't have all your eggs in one basket. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call them now at 905-529-7165. Leave a message and they will get back to you. Going to talk about professional corporations. Do we get in or not? I don't know. It's a good question. So mm-hmm. we talk, let's talk about some of the pros and cons. And maybe many of the listeners, you're, you're already incorporated. So you have a business, uh, something, something, Inc. And, um, and maybe you're debating, should I... Um, keep it or should they get rid of it? Or maybe you're a sole proprietor. You're in your own business, running your own uh, little shop, whether you're a professional, maybe you're a dentist, a lawyer, et cetera, and you're thinking, maybe it's time, maybe I should incorporate. Is that who would do this? Well, what I want to address is that area in one, particularly, Mm -hmm. but it can apply to to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of have to think about what are the advantages and the disadvantages to incorporation. Um, And we know that many of the professions have passed regulations that will now allow their members to incorporate. And so that used to be, you know, it used to be against the you know members of the the dental association mm-hmm. who couldn't incorporate or um, why in, in our industry well there was always fear about liability mm-hmm. so they wanted to make sure that the consumer was protected for one right. thing and uh, so they didn't want the 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 dentists in this case to to feel that they were um, going to be absolved of any right. of any wrongdoing mm-hmm. and, and hide behind the corporation in right. terms of risk um, so we see a lot of dentists doing it now we see doctors doing it and even financial planners are doing it. Mm-hmm. Radio show hosts are not doing it. No. No. You're still considered an employee, and we'll talk yes. a little bit about that <laughs> later. So how does a corporation work? Employee might be too strong a word. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a meeting this week or something, Scott? <laughs> it's I'm tenuous per- employee. I'm in a perpetual <laughs> <No>. meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so how does a corporation work? And, and this sort of gives you a little bit of background. And Well, one of the things, you, first of all, any earnings, any money that's earned by your business is paid paid to the corporation. It's not paid to you personally. And you become the shareholder of the corporation. And you can also include family members and you can also include a trust. And that's a little more um, advanced planning around that. As well as you're going to be the director and you're also going to be an officer of the corporation, meaning you're signing off on checks, you're signing off on any changes to the corp as well. So the corporation can pay you a salary or will pay you a salary because you're providing a service. Mm -hmm. That service might be doing um, dental services, Mm -hmm. it might be doing financial planning services, it might be doing legal services, whatever that service is that you're providing to the corporation, they're going to pay you a salary for that. Now, if you have money left over, then that's going to build up inside the corporation, 
right? So I took a certain amount of salary from a corporation and then, but it made, you know, I made $100,000 and I only took 50, so I left 50 inside the corporation. Mm-hmm. And um, so as the money builds up, that increases the value of your shares that you own. Mm. So the big advantage is if you can obviously leave money inside your corporation and let it continue to build up. Well, why is that? Well, we know that if, if all the business income is if from the corporation is paid to you as a salary, then you've basically, um, you, you've given it 100%, it's 100% taxable to you, and you're going to pay tax at your normal tax rate in Ontario, and so you have no savings left over. But if you leave that money in the corporation, the first $500,000 that your business earns is taxed at what's called the small business rate. And the small business rate in Ontario, it's a combination of a federal rate, which is 10.5%, so that's the same across the board, and then the Ontario tax on another 4.5% for a total of 15% tax rate in Ontario. Now, who do you guess has the highest provincial tax rate for small businesses, small business corporations? Hmm. Ontario? No, it's Quebec. Quebec would be ah. my second Quebec guess, is yeah. 18.5%, so we're 15%. Who do you think has the lowest Alberta. small business corporate rate? Uh, either Don't that or the Maritimes. Alberta. I would say that or the Maritimes. I'll take the Maritimes then. Uh, Manitoba. Okay. Oh. 10.5%. So basically, they're charging no... Uh, provincial tax on the first $500,000 of a, that a small mm. business earns. Mm. So very aggressive. And then you get into, I think the Yukon is actually next and then Alberta. So your the Maritimes are, are sort of up around Ontario level. Right. So Ontario kind of fits in the middle in mm-hmm. terms of taxation on that level. So money left in the corporation can then be paid out to me as a shareholder or Dawn as a shareholder, or my wife as a shareholder, Mm -hmm. or family members as a shareholder, Mm -hmm. and it's taxed uh, as what's called a non-eligible dividend. And but the total amount of tax paid, the corporation paid that small tax rate of fifteen percent, and then a dividend is paid to me, and then I have to pay tax on that dividend Mm -hmm. at my personal rate. That the two that the amount that I'm going to pay by getting money from the business as a dividend or else taking uh, income straight as a salary, the rate of tax to me personally, I'm going to end up with about the exact same amount of money, mm-hmm. right? So the bottom line again, that is if I need all the money out of the, out of the business, if it made a hundred thousand and I need all of that money to maintain my lifestyle and pay my mortgage and look after education for my kids and everything else, then there's really limited tax savings opportunities, right? right? right. Because I'm going to pay the same rate of tax, whether it was a salary or whether it's business plus dividends. So you have to be considered an independent contractor. And this is why you can't become um, incorporated because you're employed by one company and you provide your services to one company. So you're, whereas uh, for example, our clients for Don and I, we have hundreds of different clients that we provide our services to. And so therefore we're sort of, we're not, um, Uh, we're not tied to that one individual person. So not everybody can incorporate. That's one thing that you need to understand. So you need to be an independent contractor and not an employee. So what are the, some of the other uh, advantages? Well, the one we love to see, and this is where people are really motivated right now, is what we call dividend sprinkling. And the ability to direct dividends to family members that are in a lower tax bracket can now save yourself additional taxes. So 
under the the scenario where if you're running your own business and you're what's called a sole proprietor, then you can pay a salary to your kids or to your spouse, but it has to be fall under the reasonable salary guidelines, which means it has to be in line with what you would pay somebody else. You can you can certainly bump it up a mm-hmm. bit because of the closer connection, but uh, it has to be reasonable based on the amount of hours they're spending and their, their level of education and the amount of time that they're involved in, mm-hmm. in, in helping you. And now with dividend sprinkling though, you... There is what's called an anti-avoidance rule, and this is, or we call it a kitty tax. So if you are uh, have a corporation and you're paying dividends to children under the age of 18, then those dividends are actually going to be taxed back in your hands. Mm-hmm. So they do not qualify. You're going to pay initial tax penalty, I should say, to, for the kids, which basically wipes out any advantage to right. paying someone under the age of 18 um, a dividend. So we're focusing in on sprinkling dividends to family members that are age 18 and over. And I've even seen where um, uh, people have included in their share structure their parents. Hmm. And their parents could be in their 70s or 80s. But because their income is significantly low, they can pay them a dividend and Mm -hmm. continue to have it taxed at a much lower rate as well. Um, This for businesses, though, or individuals where their business is profitable, there's extra cash in the business. Yeah, so you're really trying to make sure that this business is, this is where it's sort of, you know, trying to decide, should I do it or shouldn't I do it? And a discussion with um, um, a lawyer, because in terms of incorporating, there's going to be costs and fees associated with that, but also uh, in terms of uh, meeting with your accountant uh, or tax preparer as well to see what, how does the business look? What's our forecast for the business going forward? forward. And if you're going to see that you can uh, you can receive enough salary and enough dividends from the business, but also leave money in the business, then you're, you're on the right track. Right. Yeah, right. we're definitely on the right track. Um, so you do get some liability protection for business contracts. So for example, if your business enters into a lease agreement or it enters into um, a purchase agreement, um, those you're not going to be liable for if the business, if you went out of business, et cetera, because you're sheltered from that. But uh, in terms of personal negligence claims, and this falls in for, for Don and I as well, if we mess up on uh, someone's account or if a dentist mess up or a doctor messes up, you're still personally liable for making it right. Right. Through through any kind of litigation, but uh, so personal negligence cannot be absolved through uh, liability protection of a corporation. Right, okay. but you would be either way, would you not? Yes, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Whether you're incorporated or not, right. you're still still liable. That liable. doesn't change yeah. exactly. Um, now, with this extra money that's left over in your business, remember you paid very little tax on it, only 15% in Ontario, uh, you can use those extra tax dollars that you didn't pay to pay off debt, for example. So if your business, if you're buying um, a practice from somebody or you're buying real estate through your uh, corporation, within the corporation, you can use those low those low taxed corporate dollars to pay for those. And uh, so that's certainly an advantage as well. Um one of the other advantages is paying insurance premiums. So again, you know, if you earn $100 and you only pay 15%, you've got $85 left over. 
that you can now use to pay for insurance premiums as well. So mm-hmm. it's a very cost-effective way to cover off protection for yourself and for your family. Uh, in the case of life insurance, then the, the insurance premiums, the, the beneficiary of the uh, policy would be the corporation. Right. And if you were to die, the money is now available in the corporation, and that money could be used to buy out other shareholders if there were partners involved, or it's money that could be um, used to pay out to your uh, your family through what's called the capital dividend account, which is a tax-free amount. Uh, another advantage of the corporation is you can create an IPP or individual pension plan. And individual pension plans, so these are like an RSP, but they let you put in larger contributions. So you can mm. actually get more money into it. It is creditor-proof. And unlike RRSPs, if you have any investment losses within an IPP, those can be replaced with additional contributions. So you can put more money in to make up for losses. And if you needed to borrow money to fund the IPP, the interest is actually tax deductible, which is not the case if you borrow money for an RRSP. Mm -hmm. So IPPs do have um, uh, regulatory actuarial requirements periodically to make sure it's funded properly and there's additional setup costs. So they do have a cost associated with them, but there can be some significant advantages to them as well. Uh, one other adva- uh, big advantage is investments grow tax deferred until they're withdrawn. So if you let that extra money, if you invest that extra money properly within the corporation, it's going to continue to grow on a tax, a lower tax, a lower tax rate. If you add, um, uh, say, corporate class, or there's different ways to invest it, so you don't pay as much tax, and. There's no requirement to wind it up. So unlike an RSP, which at age 71, you're required to start taking income out of it, at age 71, your corporation can just continue to go on. You don't need to start, you don't need to take money out of the corporation. You can leave it until you're 95 or 100 until you die. And again, it's continuing to grow with some tax sheltered advantage. Uh, What are some of the disadvantages? Well, the the setup and legal costs yeah. to do these. Is that a one-time cost? Though? It's a one-time cost. Yeah. So, um, generally, in the range of three to to ten thousand dollars, depending on the situation, the circumstance. That that's sort of the monies you're going to be paying to your lawyer, uh, and also to an accounting firm to reconcile the figures and projections yeah. of valuations, etc. Uh, so that can be quite a quite a setback initially. Um, then you're going to be required to file annual corporate tax returns and corporate resolutions that your accountant will prepare. As well as a personal. As well as a personal. Right. right. So that's and an that, addition. And that one is annual, as Annie just mentioned. So that's yeah. an ongoing cost. And uh, you know, that, that cost can range again. Yeah. yeah. You know, anywhere from $1,500 to $2,500 or more, oh, depe- yeah. depending on uh, the size and scope of the corporation. So we've seen them almost as high as ten. Yeah. As, so, high, as high as 10000 yeah, wow. So, yeah. yeah. So um, you have to be in that sweet spot for it to make you it do. Yeah. You do, uh, and you've got a lot of shifting in terms of changing. Uh, everything has to change because you're renaming your business. It's mm-hmm. now incorporated, so you have to change all of your stationery. You have to change your business cards. You have to change your telephone listings. You have to change your website. So you have to do, go through all of that process mm-hmm. to make sure that people now can find you and know who you are and where you are. Um, and you have to get CRA numbers, new CRA numbers, uh, GST numbers, source deductions that have to be withheld as well. So 
you know, there's there's a lot of little, I guess, uh, ongoing grunt work in terms of the ma- maintenance and maintaining a corporation as you go through it. So, you know, and I think, I guess, the sweet spot for who should be thinking about incorporating if you haven't already, um, and that really comes to somebody who's, whose business is doing well enough that they don't need all the money from it, mm-hmm. right? So what do I do with this extra money? If I can have low tax dollars, leave it in my corporation, what a fantastic opportunity. That's going to really help your, in terms of your retirement plan and tax planning. If I have um, adult children, so children over the age of 18, but perhaps below the age of 25, and they're either um, going to school or they're um, in part-time job situations where they're not making much money because we can pay them quite a bit in terms of dividends and still pay very little tax. So it's an opportunity to to shift income to a lower income tax person. And with your spouse, uh, it's another way, including your spouse as a shareholder, to income split and move dividends into their hands as well and bring them right up without having to worry about... um, how much are they involved in the business? So mm-hmm. they can have they can be completely hands hands off, not involved at all, and you can still pay them a dividend because they're a shareholder. Um, and or if you finally, if you have um, uh, issues or or if you have parents that are struggling, that are now um, you know don't have enough cash flow to maintain their. Uh, lifestyle, mm-hmm. uh, including them as shareholders. I've seen that solution now where you can pay them to help uh, create lower after-tax dollars cost for you mm-hmm. to get money into their hands to help support them in terms of their lifestyle and uh, maybe long-term care needs, etc. So we've got, uh, you know, we deal a lot with clients in, in the corporate area and a lot of advice around that. And so it's something that uh, it's important to really make sure you're taking full advantage of. The one, one area I do find people often forget about is changing their wills. Mm. Okay, they, they may mm. start to develop a lot of assets within their corporation. It could actually be their largest, largest asset class because there's no limit. You can leave whatever you want left in the corporation. And the nice thing about it, you need a secondary will. You need a will for your personal property, whether that be your, all your investments, your house, etc. And you need a separate will for your corporation. And by doing that, you actually will escape the probate costs, which could be significant. So if you've got a million dollars in your corporation, the probate costs would be approximately $15,000. Mm-hmm. So to get that secondary will, if any of those business owners are listening, make sure you uh, you know contact us. We'll go through those pros and cons. And certainly your lawyer should be uh, on top of that and helping you out for that too. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can also ask a question via the listener inquiry button as well. All right, uh, this topic or this uh, segment, investing like a business owner, even if you're not? <laughs> Absolutely. This is, you know what, there's a certain mindset when you're a business owner mm-hmm. and in, for a successful business owner, I should uh, take that back because there's a lot of, uh, you know, small businesses that do not make it. Yep. And for some of the same reasons they don't make it as individuals do is investing. Good point. And that would be generally because it's emotion based. You know, they get in a business on pure emotion not, and maybe not, uh, and they certainly could be blindsided by things that are out of their control. 
but like any investor, could also be the same way. But if you invest like a business owner, it certainly stacks everything in your favor. And the first thing is have clear investment goals, okay? Rational investors set goals and they have a discipline and they stick to them. So what you need when you're setting goals and you and your financial planner should be sitting down and actually discussing your goals, what are your short-term goals between say now and the next five years? And then what are your long-term goals? And then set up an investment portfolio that will accomplish both ends of those, okay? Know when to delegate. Successful business owners know they can't do everything. It's kind of interesting though, there's certainly a lot of people out there investing that are doing a full-time job elsewhere, mm -hmm. read a few articles in the Globe and Mail or what have you, and now they feel they can do this. And, and quite frankly, I've seen a lot of those people over the years and there's been certainly some horror stories and there's some success stories too, as long as they follow all the others, but it has to be something you really wanna do. And this is where it's great to hire a rational person to look after your affairs in terms of your investment planning, okay? Be risk adverse, number three. And this is where you wanna know what risks are you taking. You want a portfolio that's carefully crafted, well diversified, just like we were talking about not having all your eggs in one basket with real estate earlier on. You want to have your investments very well diversified in order to reduce risk, provide a more stable return over the long run, and not, you know, that greed and fear mentality. Those are, those are things that are pure emotion, and those are what cost people money. And, and business owners, they can generally see past all that. And the smart business owners look at those as opportunities. And just the facts, you know, facts, not feelings. This is what you have to, how you have to invest. It's very difficult for people though, because they look at their hard-earned money. I said, I worked 10 years to, account to get this pot of money. I don't want to blow it. Well, it's still a pot of money. And they don't like to see it go down. Of course, they don't mind it going up. But the investment flavor in the moment, be careful to keep the emotions out of investment choices. So if you see, you know, uh, say uh, Apple, Apple Computer, for example, a great company. Number one, still the largest company in the world. It was a rock star for a 10-year period. It hasn't done a whole lot in the last couple of years. Hmm. So had you jumped on the bandwagon after it's done well, then you would have missed out on a lot of performance per, for in the last, they say, two years in the Dow Jones, in the U.S. stock market. In the know, rational investors or business owners are watching the long-term trends. They're not looking at the short-term flavor of the month things that won't affect them in the long run. They want to know what's going on in the long run and they, and they keep to the long-term planning. And seize that opportunity. When you're looking at a, a small business owner, they're looking at, oh wow, um, drywall's down, insulation's down, or fertilizer's down, and there's a little bit of a, a glut in the market. For example, oil's been down recently. Those are opportunities to maybe buy up a warehouse full mm -hmm. so that when things get turned around, they'll have all the all these extra inventory to make some more money. So if you invest like a business owner, you will do certainly a lot better. Now there's something called a MSCI World Index. And that is the Morgan Stanley World, um, World Index. And basically it's, it's kind of interesting because it's done pretty good. It's a global diversified portfolio of an index of all everything. And it's taken like, for example, there's 19 countries in it, US, based on how many companies and, and, the how, and, and the value of these companies is 60% of the index. Japan's eight and a half. UK is 7.2. Canada represents 3.5% of the world. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yet, where do we put most of our, our money? Oh, yeah. And uh, France is three and a half. And the remaining portions of all the other countries, which I'd have to quick eyeball it here, works out to about 14 countries, add up to the other 17.4. So here's this MSCI World Index. And since 1969, if you put it there, went to sleep, you got an 8% per year rate of return. Not too bad at all. However, there's a 14% standard deviation. And this is, again, going back to invest like a business owner. If you can take those risks in stride, understand what you're getting involved in, because there will be years where it will go up 36%. Now, most people love buying after it's gone up 36%. Hmm. Okay, but a business owner would say, wow, maybe it's time to take some money off the table and rebalance. It's also gone down 20% in a year. And a lot, again, emotion comes into factor. And would you be buying more at that time or would you be selling? Well, peak to trough, there's even been a case in, those, in all those years since 1969 where it's gone down 50% from peak to trough. <clears throat> so the long-term trend has been 8%, but depending when you got in. If you got in August of 2000, just, after, just before the tech meltdown, mm-hmm. your return since then, 16-year return, would have been 2.8%. If you got in August of 1987, that's right before, yeah. you know, uh, Black Friday or in October, your return's been 5.95. So if you're buying right at the peak, you're definitely going to hurt your rate of return. The answer to this, though, is to buy all the time. Yeah. So if you're buying monthly, you'll end up with that average return, 8%. And you got to st- stop looking at what's happening day by day and just have a clear goal and make sure you're, you're on track to accomplish those goals. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc., 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can reach them now. Call 905-529-7165. Just leave a message. They'll get back to you. And don't forget to check out their website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. Talking about dividends, and is it always good to have one? Always, always good, good to have them coming maybe, in? Maybe, maybe not. We, uh, you know, it was an interesting uh, story where a, a client of mine, and actually this is, uh, she's, she's 79 years old, and she was widowed about five years ago. Uh, it was on her own. But uh, she's been a client of Investors Group for 30 years. Mm. I looked back historically to see when did she actually start. It was 1986. And uh, so I've been working with her for about the last 15 years, and um, she and her husband. And, you know, one of the core holdings that they've had in their financial portfolio is our Investors Dividend Fund. And Investors Dividend Fund is... uh, you know, it's when I first started 32 years ago, you know, when we only had eight funds to choose from and dividend fund was one of them. So it was one of the core holdings Mm -hmm. for all of us through the years, but it really dividend fund has consistently been, um, a portfolio of just very high quality stocks, high quality, good companies that pay dividends on a regular basis. And, uh, so they've always been, they were always in love with this investment, the dividend fund, and they kept adding to it over the years, kept adding, they would never take money out. Mm -hmm. We would talk about diversifying and moving money out. And uh, so as of uh, last week, uh, she had $750,000 in the investor's dividend mm-hmm. fund of part of about a $1.2 million portfolio. And uh, so it's kicking out about $23,000 of dividends every year, and she doesn't need them. 
between pensions and her lifestyle, uh, she's fine. So the money just simply gets reinvested. Well, as I was analyzing her tax return, what we discovered is that she's getting old age security clawed back about $2,700 last year yeah, and this that. year as well. So what, you know, one of the issues then we said, we, we, if we can lower your income, you don't need it, then you could pay, you could get some of your old age security uh, back. And so the only way to do that is to try and reduce these dividends on dividend funds. So I had to broach the subject again about unloading or selling some of her dividend fund. Well, okay. Why wouldn't everybody be involved in a dividend fund? Why wouldn't everybody even be involved in something that pays them? Well, it, it, it's true in the sense that it provides stability, it provides regular income, and, and that part of it they've loved over the years, but it's creating a bit of a tax problem right, right now because the dividends are grossed up and it's creating a clawback of a old age security. So what we looked at then is what would happen if we moved, kept her dividend fund, but switched it to a different version or series we have called our dividend class series, which would reduce the amount of dividends. And uh, then she could get back some of her old age security. Well, to do it, it, it turns out we'd probably have to sell about 500,000 of the two, of the 750,000. And that would result in triggering a capital gain this year of $100,000. Yeah. And so half the gain is tax-free and half the gain is taxable. So she would have $50,000 of additional uh, taxable income. And the tax on that's probably about $26,000 plus she would end up losing all her old age security this year, yeah. all 6,700. So the so the re, the rationale was we'll pay the piper this year, we'll pay extra tax with capital gains. Remember the capital gains never go away. So whether whether she died you know six months from now or or twenty years from now, she's still going to pay tax on those capital gains. We're not sure what the rate will be in the future. We know it is right now. Um, so we're just sort of kicking that can down the road if we leave it. But uh, so if we do some now, we could wipe out all the clawback. So we get her all over. Now she gets all her old age security. So the question is though. What's the break-even point? You know, she has to pay this extra tax right now, about twenty-six grand. She has to pay sixty-seven hundred of her old age security back, so she's about thirty thousand dollars out of pocket right now. But now she's going to pay less tax every year going forward, and she's also going to get all her old age security every year going forward. Well, we sort of looked at it. It's going to take about six and a half, almost seven years to break even, assuming the same rate of return on the investment. And she said, well, I may not even be alive by then. You never know, mm-hmm. right? And I said, well, whether you died in a year, you still pay the tax, the capital gains tax, or you died in six years, you'll still pay the capital gains tax. That doesn't change. But um, but there is a break. So if you do live to 86, so say seven, six, seven years, then from that point on, you're, you're golden because you're mm. actually receiving more income and your estate will be larger than it would have otherwise. So she hasn't made up her mind yet about, uh, about making this, pulling the trigger on this, but it's, it's still something that, um, that we see a lot of right now is we're getting to get, you know, people are, are frustrated or are upset about losing their old age security. And quite often when we dig into it and we look at their income tax return, it's a result of, uh, of amount of dividends they're right. receiving. So as I said, this isn't something that, that we haven't talked about before. It's just been such an emotional connection for her to this investment with her and her husband building it over the years that she's just never wanted to, to let go of it. She's starting to see that it's actually, it is causing her a bit of a tax problem right now. Hmm. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing with the dividend fund, I know Andy mentioned about the gross up. So if you get this, say, $1,000 of dividends, it's grossed up, which is just an artificial 
amount. You're not actually receiving this gross up of, say, 30 uh, a third. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's uh, you're not actually receiving this $300, but you're losing your old age security based on this fictitious right. amount of money that you're yeah. not even getting. Yeah. It's then offset by a dividend tax credit after the fact. So this is what the dividend is a really good, you know, kind of scenario to go through. Does it make sense or doesn't make sense? But a lot of people receiving dividends are not aware that that they are getting clawed back right. on money that they're not actually receiving. Hmm. So it definitely is worth talking to your financial planner about that. For sure. All right. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can reach them now. Just dial 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. Leave a message. They will get back to you. And don't forget about the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can also ask a question there through the listener inquiry button. Uh, Investors Group Financial Services, Inc., 905-529-7165. Thank you, gentlemen. Hey, Scott, thank you very much.